and the repeated mistakes of Abraham. Abraham, who's the pioneer, the patriarch, the father of the Jewish nation. <clears throat> and now, if you like, we've reached the season finale, the last one in the series. And on the face of it, it's frankly a bit of a shocker. And what makes it even more shocking, I think, is that traditionally, Isaac is depicted as a young child, as in the image here. I'm sure Lynn True would have something to say if she heard this story uh, of somebody in our church. Traditionally, Isaac is often depicted as a young child, although many Bible scholars and also artists have considered it's more likely that he was a young young man, maybe in his late teens or his 20s. But whatever his age, the story of an aging father who, in response to hearing the voice of the God he serves, takes his only and his much longed-for and awaited son for a 60-mile walk that lasts three days, only to bind him to an altar and take a knife to his throat, is quite a challenging sermon subject, and it's one that's perplexed lots of preachers and lots of Bible students. Because even though the narrative has a resolution and Isaac's life is spared, I think for most of us, we're still left with a slightly uneasy question. It's uneasy because we look through a 21st century lens, and to us, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? that the God we love and serve could require this brutal act of his servant or ask his servant to carry it out. And it's reported that even Oswald Chambers, who was an early 20th century holiness teacher, struggled with this story. And he even questioned whether Abraham had misinterpreted what God was asking of him. It's a story that some of us might want to place alongside uh, those stories in the Old Testament that have been described as the texts of terror. The stories about slavery, torture, about assassination, genocide, misogyny and rape. In short, stories that to our minds are about crimes against humanity. And so I think down through the ages... Christian believers often struggled. How do we interpret? How do we make sense of some of these difficult passages? And I think some people have even set aside serious study of the Old Testament because getting to grips with some of these difficult questions and avoiding, on the one hand, accepting just simplistic answers to complex problems, or on the other, Dismissing the notion of God's authority expressed through the scripture can seem a bit too hard because they're things we have to hold in tension. But I don't think that ignoring the Old Testament is an option. I think we have to get to grips with its narratives because they are part of the story. They are part of the story that if we follow it through shows God's purpose for the human race. But as Tom Wright says, we have to develop a multi-layered view as we read and as we try to understand. So firstly, we have to be aware of the setting, the historical, the cultural context in which these accounts were written, the attitudes, the customs, the beliefs of the time. 
because it was as true then as it is today, God engages with people where we are and within our own culture and within our own cultural understanding. And we have to remember that, of course, when we seek to work overseas. I think it's also helpful to understand how the church has read and applied the teachings of the Old Testament in the past. We have to appreciate how early Christians understood the Old Testament, how early Christian writers used it. Secondly, and I think most importantly, we have to always read and interpret the Old Testament which talks about God's old promises, his old covenant with his people. We have to read that and interpret it in the light of the New Testament, where we find a new covenant through Jesus himself. And if we can read the the Old Testament like that, then we will find that continually, whatever the narrative, it points us to Jesus. And thirdly, of course, we always have to ask, What do we take from these texts, from these stories for ourselves? What are the questions? What are the lessons that we apply to our lives in our own time and in our own place? So we're going to start and unpick this slightly unsettling story carefully. And we're going to look at it at those three levels. We're going to try and find out a bit more about God's purpose for Abraham and the generations that came after him the lessons of God's great love, his plan and his purpose for the salvation of the human race. And of course, there's always some challenges in there for us. So first of all, Young's literal translation, okay, okay. thank you. Young's literal translation tells us that God spoke saying, Take, I pray thee, thy son, thine only one, whom thou hast loved, even Isaac, and go for thyself unto the land of Moriah, and cause him to ascend there for a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I speak unto you. As we already know, Abraham came from Ur, situated in modern-day Iraq, down near the Persian Gulf. It was an ancient city in a pagan world. It was a city in which his own family would have worshipped other gods. Fertility rites, worship of the sun, worship of the moon, temple prostitution would have been commonplace there, along with human sacrifice. It was the cultural and religious norm that the greatest sacrifice that anyone could offer to a god, the highest sign of faithfulness to that deity, would have been the sacrifice of your firstborn child. So for Abraham, in keeping with this religious tradition that he had come from, there was no doubt that God was asking him to show his devotion by placing his precious son on the altar of sacrifice. Now, as we've learned in previous weeks, Abraham had made some pretty poor judgment calls at times, but the obedience to the God he was now following and serving was going to be proved without question. He was willingly going to surrender up the son, the promised son that he held most dear, if that was what this God, his God, required of him. 
Nevertheless, the writer of the Hebrew letters indicates that when he did this, it was not without hope and it was not without faith in the character of the God he had come to know. The Hebrews writer says, Abraham, by faith, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. The writer goes on to say, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively figuratively speaking, of course, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now we know, don't we? Because we fast forward to the end of the story. So we know that it was never God's intention that this terrible act was actually going to take place. But Abraham didn't know that. Nevertheless, There was an opportunity here for Abraham to demonstrate his love, his commitment, an opportunity in which his character was strengthened. It was an opportunity in which he was going to discover more about the heart of God, the God who saw Abraham's willingness to give up the thing he held most dear to please him. And it was on seeing that that God conferred his blessing upon Abraham and all his family line. Surely I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Which leads us on to see and consider how this story fits into the story, God's great plan for salvation. Problems with oh, there we go. Oops. We go back one. Thank you. In providing the ram as a substitute for Isaac, God was doing something else here as well. He was drawing a line in the sand, a line that demonstrated that unlike the pagan deities of the ancient world, He did not require human and child sacrifice. And that theme recurs throughout the Old Testament. This was going to be a huge sea change in the way people offered sacrifices to God. No more human sacrifice. Later in Leviticus, the Jewish nation was instructed, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your Lord. I am the Lord. And the prophets of God repeatedly spoke out against this horrific abuse of children and of young people. Now, of course, we know that animal sacrifice continued to be practiced throughout the Old Testament as an atonement for sin. But it was a temporary arrangement until God could fulfill his plan for salvation. And even... As people sacrificed and offered up their burnt offerings to God, there was a caution. The prophets repeatedly warned that sacrifices and burnt offerings alone would not please God unless people were obedient to him. And we'll unpick that thought about obedience a bit later. 
Now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus right back to Abraham. And here, in this story, in Genesis, we read all the seeds of the Christian message of redemption. It's a story that signposts us down through the generations to where we see God, the lovingly heavenly Father, who is willing to sacrifice his only Son, Jesus Christ, so that we, the children of his creation, can be brought into a relationship with him. God was always after relationship with Abraham. God is after a relationship with you and me. More important than any acts of service or sacrifice. Abraham's willingness to plunge that knife that, spilt, that would, would have spilt Isaac's blood is a picture for us of God the Father who allowed the blood of Jesus to be spilt at the cross so that we could have that relationship. Even that thicket, the thorns that ensnared the ram, could be seen as a picture of the crown of thorns that was going to be rammed onto the head of Jesus. Just as the ram was the substitute for Isaac, that in itself was a picture of Jesus because he he is the substitute for us. He is the one that atones for all our wrongdoing, whether it's in deed, in word, or in thought. Don't you think that's just amazing that here, in allegorical form, centuries earlier, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of redemption? I don't think we can ever fully fathom all that took place at the cross. Can I have the next slide, please? But it stands as that focal point in human history. It's the place where Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. The place where Jesus bore our shame so that we could go free. So that that veil, that shadow that existed between us and God could be torn down so that we could come into the light and live in a relationship with him. Whenever we read the Bible, we should ask what God means us to take from the story, from the letter, from the prophecy, from the psalm, how we should apply it to our own lives. It's pretty obvious, isn't it, that from our understanding of God's heart and from our framework of human rights, that the concept of human or child sacrifice is pretty abhorrent to us. It's a practice that's been consigned to the past. Or is it? Realising that that practice can still be continued in pockets in certain parts of the globe should fill us with horror. We cannot, we must not, close our eyes to the abuse of the vulnerable, whether it's here at home or elsewhere in the world. As God's people, as those who are called to be salt and light in our generation, we must continually ask what God would have us do to care for those who are oppressed, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. 
if we could have the next slide, please. Perhaps we need to think about our own children and young people. As parents, as grandparents, as the church, how well do we nurture them and lay foundations for their Christian faith? What altars are we sacrificing our children upon in this nation? Statistics are coming to light that raise some alarming questions that we are still, wittingly or unwittingly, sacrificing children and young people to other gods, the gods of a contemporary post-Christian culture. The next slide, please. Thank you. In the last year, 2016 to 17, Childline provided over 295,000 counselling sessions to children and young people. That's just Childline. Of those, over 13,000 were about anxiety. The top three concerns expressed by children and young people, their own mental and emotional health, their family relationships, bullying and cyberbullying. This last year, Childline reported the highest ever levels of counselling of children and young people about suicidal thoughts and feelings. These things shouldn't be, should they? And you know, as a church, we're not immune. As Christian families, we're not immune. We've had a young person in our own family who has suffered mental health problems. Needs continued nurture, care and prayer. We have teenagers who come through our doors, young people affected by educational pressure, bullying, cyber abuse, the negative side of social media, the difficulties of growing up and making sense of a, in a culture that's sexualized and often pornified, lacking a clarity about sexual relationships, gender identity and behavior. We need to pray, don't we, for our young people, for our children as they're growing up. We need to pray for members of our church who work with children, young people, teenagers. Pray for them as they seek to care for them, pastor them, disciple them. And don't we need to offer our young people a gospel that is worth living for, a gospel that transforms them and changes them, that releases them from the pressure to conform to the images and norms of this world? Don't we? But how can we offer such a gospel to them if we don't live it ourselves? So finally, what about us? There's just one more picture, Heather. If we are serious about growing in our Christian faith, there'll be times when God grants us opportunities to demonstrate our love and commitment. And while it may sometimes be through an extravagant act, more often it is simply by choosing the path of obedience to his word, even though that could mean setting aside our own ambitions, our own plans, our own preferences, our own wishes. Now, if we fail to do that, doesn't mean we're done for. Doesn't mean we've missed the boat forever. 
doesn't mean that God will wash his hands of us. Not at all. But it does mean that we might pass up, we might miss an opportunity to demonstrate our commitment to God and an experience that might enrich us and help us to grow in our Christian life and character. You know, when our children were very young, we lived in a small house in a quite a pleasant part of Birmingham. And our firstborn had a place in a very nice little local school that overlooked what had been the old village green. All good. Then we got involved in outreach in a most deprived area. And the Lord challenged us that we should be prepared to roll our sleeves up for a season and live alongside the people we were trying to reach. So when we sold our nice little house, I moved into a run-down house in a run-down street. Some people thought we were a little crazy. As a result of that simple act of obedience to that call, our two oldest children received most of their primary education in what turned out to be one of the worst performing schools in the country. And in the days before safeguarding was a consideration, they saw us welcome addicts, prostitutes, and those who were deeply scarred and traumatized into our home. You know what? They were some of the most fruitful years of our Christian life and ministry. Children haven't turned out too badly. After they left and went to university, they told us, because we asked them, They told us that they never resented those days. They never felt damaged because they saw that those experiences growing up in that environment had given them an understanding of the breadth of human experience that some of their friends from privileged backgrounds had never had. As Christians, we worship a God like no other, a God who does not call us to extreme acts of self-sacrifice. Most of us will never be called to leave everything and go and live in a jungle. He just asks for our obedience in the day-to-day matters and in our decisions about how we live our lives. Abraham had carried with him the traditions of his religious past. And you know, we can do the same. And we can mistakenly think that following the traditions of our religious, even our Christian past, is how we please God. But we worship a God who just wants us to live in a relationship with him and be open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit now. And at times, God wants to draw a line in the sand so that we leave behind even those things that we've done in service to him in the past and the way that we've done them, because he knows that unless we do, we carry baggage into the future. might be good baggage, but it's baggage, and it hinders the work of the Holy Spirit. We kind of know that in our heads, and yet we can so easily slide into an appeasement model where we, we seek to prove ourselves, our love to God, to him, and to others in the church through unending activity, as if that somehow means we earn points with God. You know, we do that at our peril because we grow weary, very weary, And as a consequence, we squeeze out precious time with the Lord himself. 
You know, in this church, I've been here long enough to know that at times we've prided ourselves on the wealth of our activities, the breadth of our outreach, the numbers that come through our doors. And both of those can be celebrated, but surely not at the expense of deepening our spiritual life of drawing aside for seasons to seek God's face, of investing in those hidden ministries of prayer, letter writing. Brian Trimmer, who passed into the presence of the Lord a few weeks ago, invested hours and days of his time writing letters of encouragement to those who had gone to serve God overseas. If we're too caught up in ceaseless activity, we fail to tend to the needs of our families, our neighbours, our friends. We cannot sacrifice ourselves upon the altar of unending church activity. Because dare I say, that model of church life looks more like the appeasement of pagan gods through sacrifice than developing a deep and intimate relationship that God intends where we hear his voice. Of course, there are disciplines that underpin the healthy Christian life, prayer, Bible study, worship together, generous giving and hospitality. But those are just part of God's great design to help us in our intimate relationship with him, not to crowd him out, to help us as we encourage one another on the journey of faith. We worship a God who wants only goodness for us, a God who yearns for us to discover our value in his sight for who we are, not for what we do. He yearns for us to discover the freedom and the healing that comes from his forgiveness. And he yearns for us to live in the abundance of grace that he provides for us. We don't have to continually earn his favour. That's why Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice at the cross so that we don't have to. All he wants us to do is come to that cross, to kneel there, to acknowledge his poured out life. It was for a purpose, a purpose that you and I can be forgiven for all that we have been all that we think, say and do that is displeasing to God and enter into a place of rest, a relationship with Jesus himself where we live in communion with him and the Holy Spirit. That's the calling. That's what he's seeking to do. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy. I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. Let's sing together, Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. Thank you. Mm -hmm.